This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Um, The Guardian Australia has created a really important digital storytelling and article series called The Killing Times, which documents frontier violence in Australia. And while this project digitally maps known massacre sites around the country, it's also very much about healing and truth-telling and coming together, which is why it's already become such a valuable new resource. Lorena Allum is Indigenous Editor at Guardian Australia, and she's joining us by phone to have a chat about it. It's great to have you, Lorena. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, I understand this is the first project that documents known massacre sites in this way. Can you talk about the the map that's been created? It, yes. So yeah, sure. So it's the first project that a, that a media organisation has done. So I have to say that historians have been covering and researching and uncovering their stories for a really long time, and we partnered with. The Centre for 20th Century Humanities, uh, Professor Lyndall Ryan, who's been building a massacre map, so to speak, for Newcastle Uni for several years now. So she very generously gave us her data and we went ahead using their very strict methodology and finished the country. So her project hadn't hadn't begun WA, so from the lack of funds. Um, so we decided to go ahead and finish, you know, start... I shouldn't say finished because there are so many more sites to come. But we used her methodology, mapped West Australia. Uh, there are 14 sites on there. There are, as I said, many, many more to come. So the reason we did it was to, to find a way for people to really visualise the extent of this history. This was over 140 years of systematic eradication of Aboriginal people. And I think... Um, People are finding it shocking, but it's but it's information that has been in the public record for a very long time. We've just had the capacity to bring it all together in this way for Guardian readers. Yeah, and we've heard about the need for a national truth-telling process, particularly associated most recently with the Uluru Statement from the Heart and also the treaty process underway here in Victoria. And I wonder what your thoughts are about the role of, of journalists or, or the media more broadly in that process. Yes, well, I think we have a role where possible to inform the country. I mean, that's our fundamental job. So with this program with this project, our intention was to show people this is your history, this is how your country was settled. The process that emanates from this sort of information, it's sort of a civic education project, if you like. So the, the, the way that the experts use this information is entirely, you know, I'll, I'll defer to the experts on that. So I think as, as journalists, uh, it is our job to inform the country. And so that was the main motivation. And we're having a little bit of trouble with your line, Lorena. I don't know if you can move side to side or something to, to get a better connection. Um, but, I mean, you mentioned just earlier that you have used sort of strict protocols with the way that you've reported this, and part of that is to be really conservative in the estimates of the number of deaths associated with some of these sites. Can you sort of talk about that, but also the way that you've categorised some of the, the sites that, that are on the map already? So, yes, so we used the methodology, and tell me if I drop out, won't you? No, that's a bit better. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I'll, come, I'll just leave a look. So, um, we used the methodology that Newcastle University had developed just so there was a standard data set that we could look at and analyse. 
Um, it, they are conservative estimates, and we make that very clear. This is the beginning, we hope, of a process that that sort of happens in, in a public way. So these are very conservative estimates using the European colonial record. So we have chosen sites where more than six people were killed. Uh, six is the number that Lyndall Ryan's team came up with, and there have been many questions about why six. In her view, in a, in a sort of small group of, in, in our mobs used to, you know, in a group of 20 or 30 people, killing six of them is a, is a massive um, loss and it really impacts on people's capacity to look after family, to look after country and to just survive. So those were the decisions that we made. So where people go to the map and see dots, those dots are only of situations where we have found three primary sources to verify that more than six people were killed. So, and, and we know, like, the colonial record isn't the most reliable <laughs> informant on what really took place. And people, you know, we're talking about ger the journals of perpetrators, so there, there's often a tendency to, you know, to downplay the horrors of what went on. There's a tendency to use euphemisms, like they, they indulged in a bit of land clearing, those were the things that we were subjected to. So, you know, it is a very conservative uh, map, but, it, you know, in, it, in and of itself, knowing that, it, it's fairly confronting. Absolutely, and as well as engaging with the historical record from, um, you know, colonisers and, and settlers and so on, you also engage with people alive today, relatives in many cases of both perpetrators and victims of, of massacre sites in, in different areas around the country. What's it been like engaging with people and, and hearing their thoughts on, on the impact of what these incidents kind of had on, on their lives? It's been horrendous. <laughs> it's been really traumatic. Uh, it's one of the most uh, difficult uh, projects I've ever worked on. This is my history as well. I mean, most blackfellas these days, we are the survivors. You know, this, as the saying goes, we're the descendants of the ones you couldn't kill. So this is very much my family history. It's the history of most Aboriginal people that I know. Um, so it is, it is confronting and it's traumatic, but, but the interesting thing about talking to descendants of survivors is that they want these stories told. They think it's really important that their perspectives are heard. Um, not everybody wants a big showy truth-telling process. Lots of people just want uh, resources to be able to research the history. They maybe want memorialisation at the site. Some people want to come together with the other side so that they can kind of start to heal. So people have different wants and needs and those things need to be recognised uh, from place to place. Meeting up with the descendants of perpetrators, I think it's really important that those stories are told as well because people, some people are in, well, most of Australia is in deep denial about the fact that this took place. And the descendants of perpetrators who've done enough thinking about this to want to take responsibility is a really important step because, and for the process to be done without shame or guilt is really important. It matters to everyone. So Coniston is a good example of where people on both sides 
have come have started to come together and that there's a responsibility on the descendants of perpetrators to it's what we do next that matters is what one of them said yeah, and another one said, and this really stuck out to me, is um, I've got a direct connection to it, but that doesn't make it my history and not yours. And this idea that we all share it, um, whether we've, we're descended from police or others who perpetrated the massacres or from survivors, it's really powerful, the reporting you've done. I wonder if you can tell um, our listeners the story of Alliston Air um, Peninsula where uh, your map shows Wurrungu people were massacres and now there's a memorial there, but it was hard fought to get that memorial. Mm. Yeah, it was. It's taken a long time, uh, more than 50 years, I guess, for the, the town to recognise that the, the events even took place. There's still townspeople who deny that it ever happened and that think that, and they're threatening to go and bulldoze the monument. The monument is uh, up on Waterloo Bay, where, as you say, uh, Wirringu people were herded to their deaths over the cliffs. It's a very steep... A, you know, it's a pretty rough and wild spot right there on the, the Great Australian Bight. So the Wurringu have been fighting for a long time for the memorial. Uh, the one that's gone up has got anti-graffiti paint on it and is surrounded by boulders so that it isn't damaged. Um, they feel like, I mean, there's been a new alliance of local people. They had a, The former mayor was very supportive, so that all helped. The memorial itself was awarded a um, reconciliation, a local government award last year. But I think the town itself is still dealing with the aftermath. There are people who are uh, in denial. There are people who are angry, who don't want to face up to the truth of it. Um, so there's a, still a lot of work for that town to be done. And I think that there are lots of towns around Australia where the same situation applies and, and people might want to do the work they just don't know how to start yeah and, and such important work that's been done so far and this series of yours follows on from your series deaths inside last time which won a walkley for its incredible coverage of aboriginal deaths in custody across um, the country and i wonder about the future of this particular series i mean is this does this remain a focus for guardian australia going forward because there are no doubt you know countless stories to be told across australia this is really just the tip of the iceberg yeah, that's right. Yes, it is an ongoing uh, project for us. So we're still working with the University of Newcastle research team. They've uh, now got funding to do West Australia so and have just hired some fantastic historians over there. So we will continue to work with them to update the map and to track these stories. Um, one of the things that, I mean, we're not... One of the things we would like to see out of this is, is more support for people on both sides, the descendants need, um, they need to find the language, they need to find a way to connect with each other. And, you know, some people might need help with that. So, so finding the resources for those people to come together um, is, is pretty important. But it's an ongoing commitment that we've made to this project. Yeah, and I suppose, uh, I, I mean, maybe that was a natural end to our conversation, but I am all of a sudden curious, like, what resources do you, do you mean? Because I, I note on some of the articles you, you put up the lifeline number, you know, 131114, because it is so traumatic for many people, not only reading it, but partaking perhaps in, in telling this story. But are, there, are you thinking of ways of finding people and, and linking them, or, or what do you envisage? Well, it, it, it's what people have said to me. So one of the, of one of the perpetrators said it would be great if we could all come together. 
we really want to all have a, we want to meet and have a, <laughs> a support group for want of a better phrase. So that's one suggestion that was raised. Not everybody wants a big public thing though. So it really is up to people um, on the ground. And, and I suppose what they need is, is, is um, a safe place to come together, uh, a safe environment to tell their stories. And um, whatever process that happens on the ground, locally, regionally, or even nationally, has to has to have uh, support for those people. Um, and the rest of us need to get out, get informed. There's no reason why we should not know these things already. Um, and so, even if we're not descended from either side, if you like, um, most Australians today have benefited from the the violence colonisation of this country so we have to face up to that and and that's why that's what we're doing is saying this is why a voice to parliament is so important this is why constitutional reform is essential this is why we need a truth-telling process in that order and um, thanks to uh, you and The Guardian for um, helping us uh, along that journey Lorena it's a, a remarkable series and um, thanks for talking to us today Oh, no worries, thank you. And it's probably hard for some to imagine now, but newspapers in Australia were once an incredibly powerful force and media owners like the Murdoch family dynasty have been both villains and political kingmakers. And actually, many newspaper owners went on to become politicians. Uh, Professor Sally Young has documented the history of Australia's newspapers in a new book, which is about 100 or 150 mil thick. I haven't actually measured it yet. It's called Paper Emperors, The Rise of Australia's Newspaper Empire. And it's really great to have you in at Triple R, Sally, and congrats on such an amazing tome of a history. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I I suppose um, we should just start with, I mean, how far back do Australian newspapers go? 1803 is our first newspaper in Sydney, and uh, it's a really interesting one because it was started by a, a former convict. And so we had a very abrupt beginning to our newspapers in the way they began here. But um, he later became a multimillionaire, a bank shareholder, owner of um, a bank, the Bank of New South Wales. So he's, he went from, uh, you know, convict to multimillionaire power players. And newspapers help with that. And you see that throughout time, this um, confluence of power and money, profit and power. So just still today. Yeah, and I, I suppose, I mean, that was the very first one. And, and did it, was it sort of rapid, the rise of newspapers, or how did that sort of happen over the first sort of 40, 50 years? Yeah, it, t- it took a while, but one of the um, biggest factors that helped newspapers was that the government would give subsidies and allow them to be posted for free. So, we, you know, taxpayers really subsidised the development of newspapers in terms of getting them out there and spreading them. And then there were things like um, mechanics institutes and libraries and people would read them there and hand them around. Originally they were very expensive, so one copy might have um, been in a pub much handed round or um, at a library much read. So um, they, once they became cheaper, and printing technology is the key fact that allowed them to become cheaper, then they spread much more rapidly and really integrate as an, a very important way to get news especially in a place like Australia as well where there's lots of geographical isolation. Yeah and it's interesting to me um, from reading the book uh, to, to learn about how newspapers developed specifically in the Australian context throughout the, the 19th and the early part of the 20th century as well. Um, not so much I, I guess as, as a beacon of that kind of fourth estate role speaking truth to power that we associate with, with journalism and, and freedom of the press and so on but often by in Australia's case a kind of deference to authority and and commercial ambition kind of underpinning their reason for being. Can you talk to, to that idea and, and how that sprung up in, in the Australian context? 
context. Yeah, I think think that's an important point, and and basically one of the biggest points I wanted to make in the book is that newspapers have always considered that they talk truth to power, they're a watchdog on power, but they never recognise very well that they are very powerful themselves and they have thrown their weight around in many ways. And so they don't scrutinise themselves and that's what I wanted to turn the spotlight on them um, and particularly on owners because there's a lot of focus always on individual journalists oh journalists don't do this what's the quality of journalism and so on but journalists are just one part of it and they work in organizations and very hierarchical organizations with editors and sub-editors and executives and owners and they set the tone and they're very important and I wanted to um, look at them in great detail so yes there's this commercial mix there's this power mix and that really does develop from the start and as you said earlier a lot of the early newspaper owners were politicians or would be politicians or became politicians so it's not that they're separate from politics they're actually very involved in politics Mm. yeah and that was something I didn't know in such detail until I read this book and um, but also um, I mean you write about the difficulty in getting information about owners of newspapers and this sort of history that you tried to write I suppose you're, you're wanting that information but it's not like you could get it out of News Limited today no no um the sydney morning herald now its papers are in the state library in new south wales in the mitchell library and um that is an incredible resource and archive but um the news corp organization has been far more secretive and not allowed many people to look at their corporate records or in my case didn't even respond to letters me asking for access or said that they didn't have those records anymore which is a bit difficult to believe they're somewhere and uh, people have looked at them in the past but again I, I thought that was part of the hypocrisy of this because newspapers say we write the first draft of history but when anyone tries to write a history about them then they're not very open to later drafts being written yeah, and I wonder why that is. Like, I mean, have you got your own hypothesis? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's it's about power and um, unscrutinised power, and so that's why they often, as I said before, they don't like to consider themselves part of the power structure. They like to pitch themselves as the good guys, keeping watch on the politicians and who are power. But they are very powerful, and part of <coughs> excuse me is a hiding. The, you know, the, the way in which power was exercised and not having a lot of debate about it. But I think those times are, are gone. A lot of people are aware. You know, you wouldn't have known many years ago if you asked a few decades ago who owns your local paper. Lots of people wouldn't know. Now people are much more aware. They've heard of Rupert Murdoch or they've heard of, you know, they know the Herald Sun, for example, is part of that organisation. So people are more aware, more critical, more talking about who owns papers. And I think that's a sign of sort of how power has changed as well. Mm, there's something else that's characterised the history of, of newspaper empires in Australia is the, the voracious appetite that Australians have had for for newspapers and, and reading the news. Why is that, do you think? Why have we been such, um, you know, large consumers of yeah, the news? Yeah, we have oh, We have traditionally been very large consumers of newspapers. We also have a reputation, like if you look at media studies, of adopting new technology pretty rapidly as well. So I think it's just a characteristic of, um, you know, how we live. I think that we people are very interested in what's going on around them. We have high literacy, we have good education standards, and we've had that for a long time, earlier than other sort of Western democracies so part of it was probably the geographical isolation that you want to know about what's going on Um, so all of those factors I think play into it but I think we're still the medium has changed people use their phones now whatever but you can see there's a sort of thirst for information and news that in Australia we're quite um, you know keen on finding out that sort of 
information and staying up to date. Yeah, and I suppose it feels, perhaps it feels a bit urgent to write this history now because things are changing so much, particularly in newspapers. I mean, most of the news you read in newspapers about newspapers is that the business model is pretty challenged. Yeah, it's it's got nowhere to go, really. I mean, you, you look at the newspapers now, and that's what struck me as I'm writing this book, because you look at the newspapers now, they're so thin. I mean, they, they look sick, and you can see that they're not doing well. Their audiences are going elsewhere. Their advertisers are going elsewhere. They're really struggling to make money, and no one sees any way out of that. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any turnaround um, in terms of they've, they've missed that boat. So now what, what happens with newspapers next is the most interesting part. And there's, there's another book in the making which might kill me to, to write another one. <laughs> this one seems to have nearly killed me. But the, the next story to be told is from the 40s to now, and it's the decline. This was the rise, and the next one's the decline, because that's clearly what's happening. Yeah, and historically, uh, power and, and ownership of, of newspapers has been in the hands of a select few people, really, throughout Australia's history who have had very concentrated ownership why is that? Why ha- has the Australian kind of news industry developed in that way? Yeah, it, part of it's population and economies of scale. So, um, you know, it's possible for an owner to... It's it's better for them to have more newspapers and restrict competition, and that's more possible in a, in a place like Australia than it is elsewhere where they might have stronger local papers and local connections and things. We're very urban, cities, metropolitan based newspapers and we've just had some very aggressive very canny companies that have been very good at taking over papers interstate the Herald and Weekly Times was the giant um, and it's mentioned a lot during the book because it really set out to colonise and and empire build and take over interstate papers and I mean it's it's just such an unusual situation that we have and even today we might have you know a city of four million plus people and um, you know two newspapers or you might some many capital cities in Australia only have one daily newspaper and that's really concentrated that's very small amount of information and even though we're saying newspapers are clearly not going well they're still very important and influential Um, and still have a very big role to play, even setting the agenda for other media as well. So Yeah, and you're right that these newspapers, particularly in the, in the early days, were almost um, all conservative in their kind of uh, political affiliations. Very few ever supported kind of a, a Labor potential government or, or Labor government in power. What impact has that had on Australian society, do you think? I mean, I know it's hard to exactly trace the extent to which a newspaper does inform people and inform the way that a society develops, but it's seems that must have had some considerable impact on on Australia. Yeah, it clearly has. I mean, it's restricted the terms of debate and it's narrowed the, you know, diversity of opinion that comes through in newspapers. There were Labor papers in some areas, so I should point that out, but they... You know, when we're talking about the commercial newspapers, the metropolitan ones, they were nearly overwhelmingly conservative, um, and that's their owners are business people, so that makes sense. I mean, they're, um, you know, that that's their reason for being is that they're owned by a business owner, and that's their political philosophy, and that permeates papers sometimes deliberately, sometimes quite forcefully, and then others, it's just you know, part of how they operate, but. Um, there were some competing labour newspapers, but they really struggled up against really well-resourced commercial papers. And what impact that's had, that our papers have been so overwhelmingly conservative, you'd, ha- you'd have to say it's kind of, I think, shifted the nature of debate. And if you, uh, if you look back over time, we were a more progressive place. You know, we had a reputation for being very progressive, say, in the early 1900s, whatever, and you, you wouldn't probably say that now and compared to other some other countries and places. So it might have had that that impact what what interested me was that this isn't the case overseas for example you know there are there were 
very powerful commercial newspapers in metropolitan places in the US, for example, and they were labour supporting and supporting immigration and women's rights and all sorts. They were very progressive and we just didn't seem to have that. Our papers were, even the tabloids were quite conservative in political orientation, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And Sally Young's with us and she's Professor of Political Science at the University of Melbourne. She's written a book called Paper Emperors, The Rise of Australia's Newspaper Empires. And just on that same point about, you know, or some of the owners started as progressives and became very quickly conservative but the age seems to have been a little bit different to even it's now you know um a stable mate the sydney morning herald and i was interested also that a lot of the newspapers were campaigning against even men's suffrage let alone women's and the vote and yet we were among the first you know one of the first countries in the world to get the vote for women so on one hand they were powerful on the other some of these progressive reforms still happened that's right and th- and that's the interesting thing because even in some elections where all all the major newspapers were saying vote for the Conservatives and really strongly saying that people didn't, they still voted like So it, it, even though newspapers are powerful, it doesn't mean people always do what they say or pay attention to them or read the political editorials anyway. A lot of people probably don't. And probably those editorials and the slant of the paper is more directed to other elites really um, than it might be to other, to ordinary readers sometimes. But yes, it's it's an interesting factor that they were all, you know, against some of them, you know, major papers were against, um, you know, non-property holders voting. They were against women voting. They were all that they were sometimes really steadfast against any sort of progression. And it's really interesting that, yes, that happened. But we probably had more papers in those days and we had, um, you know, we did have, as I said, some Labor newspapers and we had a very, you know, more progressive politicians were at the forefront and leading the charge. But... Yeah, it's it's interesting con- contrast, as I said, with other countries where you, you see that. And that um, tendency to start off as liberal, which did happen, and then to go conservative, that seemed to, that just kept happening again and again. It was all throughout. And I wonder, too, I mean, this idea of a newspaper or our newspapers collectively being the first draft of history, what sort of draft was it, do you think? Do you think it was, you know, accurate to the way that the society was in those days or, or not? You sort of got to read... You've got to look at it through the lens of the owner of some of these newspapers. Yeah. The owner and the the environments in which they work. So, for example, very few female journalists. So that that inevitably were there any owners that were women? No, no, not really. Um, maybe of some smaller, more local papers, but Daily Metropolitan, the big money makers, the big powerful ones. No, and they even if they had daughters, they often even older daughters. It was the sons that was all the focus, um, and that still happens today. You know, you can see the discussion now about News Corp and the succession. You know, they don't really consider the daughters in that, um, and that's always been the case. But, yeah, the colour of events that we got was was definitely influenced by the fact that, for example, that they, you know, know very few women journalists, or they, if they did, they were, like, writing a women's page or something. So that colours it for a start. Political um, agenda setting and political... Um, intentions colour it so yes but but at the same time at having used old newspapers as a major source of writing this book you look back and think you know what an amazing volume of information and and uh, you know we ha- we're lucky in Australia we've got Trove through the National Library where you can look up old newspapers and it's an incredible resource so even knowing that some of the perceptions that they put out they weren't the full story it's still an amazing resource to look at old newspapers and what they were reporting and the 
um, you know, events that they were undertaking. Yeah, and there's a few key uh, individuals who've had an incredibly significant influence on the trajectory taken um, in Australian newspapers from the kind of 19th into 20th century as well. And one of those, of course, is Keith Murdoch. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit about his experience because he um, kind of was uh, influenced by Lord Northcliffe um, in the UK and, and that kind of new journalism that was emerging towards the end of the 19th and into the 20th century. How did he uh, influence the trajectory of, of newspapers, both as a journalist and eventually as, as an owner? So Keith, Keith Murdoch's incredibly important and, and he just keeps recurring through, throughout the book because he was an, you know, a pioneering journalist. Um, he was one of the first sort of star-named journalists that people would have recognised his name because most people didn't, most journalists didn't get a byline until much later. So as a journalist, he was paving the way. He was always a real political power player um, and even some of his early documents from when he's 19, he's talking about that. It's such a key theme in his life. And then later he becomes a very important executive at the Herald and Weekly Times and even later an owner himself. And then his son, Rupert, has obviously carried that to another degree. So um, he's just a fascinating individual. Like People talk about him as being very charming, obviously extremely smart and on the ball, very politically savvy, although he makes mistakes and that, that's really interesting as well. Um, and he's less in touch with what's going on later. He's one of those ones that treads that path from, you know, pr- being pretty open and progressive and interested in even labour politics and things at the beginning of his career when he's a young journalist and playing a role in starting up the journalist union even. But then at the end of his life, he's very steadfastly conservative um, and very much trying to build a, a, an empire for his son to hand over to his son. Um, so, yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating individual and he's just had such an important effect and you can see he, you know, paved the way for what, what has come later, including through his son, obviously. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many incredible people in... Australia's sort of um, media history and I suppose one of them is uh, that might come in the next volume is I'm going to head up the ABC, Ida Buttrose. I mean, she, you know, and I suppose things must change in the next chapter that that women have more of a a role and and more influence Mm. or... Do they? Yeah, well, it takes a long time. <laughs> 1980, yeah. I think. 1981, when yeah. she became the first female editor of a, of a major masthead at Daily Metropolitan newspaper. So that's a long time. I mean, they've been around since, you know, 1803. <laughs> <laughs> so it took quite a while. Um, and, it's, you know, it's still a problem. I mean, there, there wouldn't be, you know, as many female executives in major corporate. We know that. Um, so it does take a long time. And I think that's been part of their problem. You know, there's a lot of discussion about... They didn't get on the digital um, scene well quickly enough or well enough. Newspapers didn't harness what could have been, you know, their next field. They saw it as a competitor, as they had with radio and other new media. And so they try and block it off. They don't really see, okay, this is a new way to do things. And then they get, you know usurped by other new players like Google and Facebook and others. But they also didn't understand female audience, that they could have had a much better connection with their audiences and they never really tried that. They always sort of saw their audiences, you know, males and um, didn't really change or reflect that. And that hurt them a lot, I think, as well in terms of audiences. And I guess given some of the difficulties you've encountered in um, telling this story and and accessing all the kind of um, primary, secondary source material that you'd need to, to tell this story, would you anticipate 
expect much of a, a backlash at all from any segments of the media to what you have revealed yeah, in this I book? Definitely. I think that backlash is already is already coming it's through, actually. <laughs> um, it's coming through. There'll probably be more, be more of it. In, in the book, I make a, a very strong claim that the story that's been told about how News Limited started is not correct, and I'm, I make an alternate case for that. There's already a bit of backlash about that, which I fully expected. Um, yeah, I mean, look, as I said before, this is an industry that doesn't like scrutiny. Uh, I'd start the book by describing how one media executive says, you know, asks another company not to report on his comings and goings and says, dog does not eat dog. And that just sums it up to me. You know, companies don't criticise other companies. Owners don't write about other owners. Everyone, you know, just focuses the attention elsewhere. So when the spotlight's turned on them and, and on journalists who work for some of these major companies, then yes, I, feel, I fully expect that they wouldn't enjoy this book. This book is very critical of newspapers and, and says that, you know, rather than being outside of politics, they've been right in there. And that that's quite obvious, I think, I thought anyway, but it's not something that they that some people like to be said or pointed out. And uh, yeah, I think um, we'll see some more backlash and particularly with the next volume. And at least in this one, the major people I'm talking about are dead. Um, and that means that I don't have to fear defamation or anything like that. The next chapter that I write where you talk about living people, you have to be far more cautious. In this one, I was, you know, I, I had primary correspondence, which is really good. You can quote their own words and say, this is what they were thinking, this is what they were saying, and it's hard to argue against. But, yes, I mean, in inevitably with writing something like this, you definitely expect people won't enjoy being told that journalists aren't always the good guys or newspaper companies aren't always the good guys. Yeah, and for some that's uncontroversial, as you say. <laughs> if you want a copy, I have a copy to give away of um, Paper Emperors. If you want to dig deep into the uh, history of, of News Limited and others, um, Sally Young, uh, Young has been our guest and it's uh, Paper Emperors, The Rise of Australia's Newspaper Empires. You're going to have to pick it up from Triple R, though. We cannot post this book. It's very heavy uh, and I think it will be something that many of you will enjoy. And thank you so much for coming in Sally. Thank you. And uh, we've spoken to Hannah Asafiri from the Moroccan Soup Bar several times over the past few years about the event she runs called Speed Date a Muslim and there's another event coming up on the 7th of April and we've asked Hannah to come back because it seems in the wake of the Christchurch terrorist attacks that we need this kind of coming together event more than ever and it's really great to have you in the studio again. Hello, good morning. Good morning and when you put out the call of course I'll always say yes. Yeah and Thank I, you for I was, me. Yeah, no worries. And first up, I mean, how are you going? How, how are you feeling? Um, look, surprisingly, and I think most uh, probably wouldn't say that, I'm feeling really optimistic at the moment and I'm feeling a sense of uh, positive support, uh, a lot of love, a lot of compassion um, that we haven't seen as Muslims in Australia for a very long time. So, yes, whilst simultaneously feeling quite conflicted and um, profoundly saddened by the events at Christchurch. Um, so it's been, it's been an unusual time, an unusual time where there is also a lot of optimism. Um, so for me, that, that's reassuring. Yeah, and, and where, where does that optimism come from for you, from the, the community response to this horrific thing that, that happened in Christchurch? Have you seen that that mm. has been, I guess, a, a positive expression of solidarity that maybe we've been lacking in recent mm. times? Well, I think we've not only been lacking, I think um, at times even those of us who 
probably think more humanely and belong to the right human rights organisations and read the right books. And um, I just think we've been a bit complacent and our uh, support has not been active and we haven't extended efforts uh, to solidify our communities, to celebrate our differences. And whilst our governing bodies have... Um, I guess simultaneously attacked and eroded the very glue and adhesion that keeps multiculturalism alive. Um, and these aren't just Australian phenomenon that, um, I guess, just briefly talking about the global context, I mean, there's been a shift to a very polarised, uh, divisive fault line and that's unfolding right around the world um, I mean you only have to look at each individual country and who they're voting in and what the conversation is and to me um, it's not about where the economic wealth lies necessarily, it is about the social harmony and how safe communities and societies are um, so I think Australia has certainly um, followed hot on the heels of some of those uh, dangerous phenomenon in uh, what our governments, not only uh, what they whip up and what has currency, but also what they're silent on. Um, and I think they have a responsibility to govern for the well-being and safety of all Australians. Uh, have they done that over the last two decades? Absolutely not. Um, have they... And this is, uh, look, with respect, this is across both political parties. I'm not, um, you know, pinpointing one. Our affiliation is with human rights, social justice, safe, secure societies, environments. Um, but it is definitely more obvious in, in the camp that is currently governing the, the country and more and more creating a chasm between uh, what should be celebrated as progressive, humane societies and what is the current reality, particularly for Muslim women and Indigenous communities. I mean, those sorts of conversations... Um, I guess to me, what we say matters, what our leadership says matters, what our leadership in conjunction with what the media promotes matters because it ends up impacting in a practical way, um, impacting the lives and livelihood and safety of Muslim women. So when, uh, you know, when events... Uh, that we don't silence, that we don't scrutinise, that we don't, um, you know, and when conversations like whether it be Fraser Anning or Pauline Hanson or Christensen or Peter Dutton or whoever or Sonia Kruger or whoever in the media and or anybody that's, that occupies a platform um, and is promoting division, fear, scrutiny and hostility towards certain groups of people needs to be interrogated. I'm not saying shut it down. What I'm saying is we have a responsibility to everything we say depending on the platforms we occupy and that responsibility should be to the values that we uphold. Now as a society if we are upholding a society that is multicultural, that we want to celebrate beyond our food and annual festivals, then we have a responsibility to ensure our discourse is not divisive. So, um, and I guess to, to kind of break that down in a more practical way, just as an example, the Berg Street um, events happened and, you know, our Prime Minister came to Melbourne and he put the entire Muslim community on notice 
you people better get out of your rabbit holes and you know when uh, these terrorists are hanging out in your uh, sermons and listening to your that you need to call them out and you need to and I just think even if we took that at face value and even if we accepted that that is <clears throat> from a place of uh, you know a community and a society who um, is rejecting outright any form of extremist expression then show me the same when these events happen. This is one of the most dangerous phenomenon that Australia, I don't think this has ever happened since the massacre of indigenous people of this country, that we not only radicalised a man in Australia and we exported him to commit yeah, one so of the most horrendous acts in this country's history since colonisation. Yeah, it's just horrendous. And I, I, I mean, you and, and many others have been speaking out for a long time, Hannah, on, on a whole range of the issues that you've just raised. And this event, Speed Data Muslim, uh, has come out of that. And you've been running it for three years, um, successfully for three years, as a way of coming together, as a way of breaking down barriers that, you know, people necess hasn't necessarily put up between each other but have arisen through all the discourse and, and all the things that you were just saying. I mean, uh, maybe talk about why you started these events. So Speed Data Muslim was born out of um, the Charlie Hebdo. Uh, that was the backdrop to uh, these occasions that all of a sudden these events happened and the way in which we began to talk about them. Although there's been a build-up since September 11, the way in which we talk about Muslims generally, but more specifically around those events that Muslim women began uh, being attacked randomly in the streets and more increased in a more public way and in a more almost legitimated uh, those attacks towards Muslim women and I'm somebody who's founded on the belief that human beings are decent and in particular Australians that we do have a tendency to go for the underdog notwithstanding the history and certainly the politics of indigenous dispossession and I think we, even with that just if I can kind of sidetrack a bit I think there's a lot of momentum that is now wanting to come back and do the right thing and work towards treaty um, so all these issues are a reflection of a community who's hungry for a more compassionate conversation, as opposed to the one that is disengaged that is happening by our governments. So, um, just to come back, so Speed Data Muslim was born out of an innocent idea to bring people together, founded on this notion that human beings are decent and if you can humanise the very issue that they've been made afraid of, um, then almost always we both connect with our humanity. And they have become not only... Um, look, I'm not saying in any way they contributed to changing the outcome of the Victorian government election, but they certainly have contributed to uh, keeping our communities uh, safe, to enabling people to come together beyond the, the divide that's been promoted and certainly given a lot of oxygen. Um, and uh, more and more, the questions, and I think they're also speaking to more than just Islam and the undercurrent of Islamophobia. They're actually speaking to um, 
the 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 necessity i think where people are seeking platforms and spaces to speak to stuff that is real stuff that is not um, shrouded in what is politically correct to say stuff that enables um, enables to say for people to express their curiosity and all their concerns and all their scrutiny and all but as long as we we enable those platforms to be a contestation of ideas but in a respectful manner and the only thing we ask of people and have always asked is that your approach is one of curiosity not one of judgment so don't tell me what you are responsible for isis but ask me why is isis and we're happy to have that conversation so that's one thing and and the the i guess the noticeable change even in the last week from Christchurch um, and, and it is so sad that it takes something like this for people to begin to hear what people have been saying for a long time um, is that we have now shifted back to a sense of curiosity once more instead of suspicion and fear and that sentiment is palpable <clears throat> and the last thing about Speed Data Muslim is that we don't um, just simply promote this idea that Islam is a peaceful religion and peace accept us and uh, um, nor are we so naive as to uh, ignore and reject the real conversation that is necessary around look at what's in, on display across the Muslim world. Let's put that in context. Let's understand why and the role of not only colonisation but the role of misogyny and patriarchy within the Muslim society, what it does to women. So we're not, you know, a bunch of kind of just women sitting here quoting the Quran to you and telling you how back in the day it was amazing. We, we place it in the current context and we speak to current tensions and social issues like asylum seekers, indigenous reconciliation, climate change, who all are natural allies in um, a grounded understanding of Islam. Mm. And how, I mean, it's, it's, it's at once both an incredibly generous and in some ways quite brave thing to, to um, offer yourself at one of these events and say, you know, I'm a Muslim woman, ask me anything, given the way that Muslims have been targeted throughout the media and, and society, particularly in the last couple of decades. So how has that gone for, for the women who have been part of it? I mean, have, what have they learned or, or got out of um, facilitating these kind of discussions? Look, interestingly, I mean, we, like I said, it was born out of a very innocent yet grounded in the assumptions that people are decent and you just need to give those opportunities for people um, and almost always like with everything we do you don't understand there's another layer of influence and then there's another um, I guess element that we didn't consider so a lot of the Muslim women who themselves come uh, not only find a sense of connectedness with one another but also curiously we all learn something as well and we learn and teach one another um, and when I say one another, all of us in these events and during these events. So some Muslim women, uh, for example, will begin to kind of feel a little more empowered in the understanding that is more nuanced and that is grounded in a context of Islam which liberates women as well as rejects uh, the expression of Islam uh, that is on offer at the moment and um, so so for some women it's also been an occasion uh, that's enabled the empowerment through information through understanding and through unpacking where 
they haven't had those opportunities before. So I'm not saying, look, it's the answer to everything, but it's certainly um, a mode and a platform of empowering Muslim women as well as the community uh, at large because information, um, and I think information enables us the wisdom to discern what decisions to make and how to make them. And um, from there, these these platforms, and that's why they're so popular and that's why people keep Yeah, and people have them. been going for years. And um, we're speaking with Hannah Asafiri about Speed Date and Muslim, which has been going for the last three years. And another one's coming up on the 7th of April, which we'll tell you about. Um, but I wanted to, I mean, while we've got you here, uh, I mean, Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand Prime Minister, has been really celebrated around the world for her leadership ship at this really difficult time and um, the way that she's not only um, well, she's used this terrible tragedy as a way of trying to connect at least um, but what is it that she's doing do you think that's different to the way our political leaders have have responded um, I don't think she's doing anything in the same way um, I, I think she's showing her humanity she's showing us a person uh, who is intelligent, who is wise, who is compassionate, who is supportive. She's not showing us a politician. Yeah, not our um, politicians don't end up projected on a Dubai no, that's um, right. tower. Yeah. That's right. And look, when... Um, and I think also in all fairness, it's, it's not to say that New Zealand uh, does not have social and racial tensions. It does. Um, it's the way in which, and I think she has been exemplary, in showing how one can begin to heal and mend hearts and minds of people. Um, so I think she's an extraordinary example for these times. And I think her strength is that she's not following anybody's footsteps. She is simply responding with absolute sincerity. I mean, that she's been embraced by the very people vilified, who, and I've heard no criticism of her in the entire Muslim community. So I think, I mean, that compared to the way in which we have the conversations here, um, and look, if I if I need to be a little bit positive, and I think we all know how fantastic Jacinda Ardern is, and I, I can't say enough about her, um, but bringing it back home, and I think there's also an important um, opportunity to be positive. There has been a change of tone in this government, even if it's hollow. Whether it's sincere or not remains to be seen. Um, but the the first time in two decades and this may be factually <laughs> correct if there was a fact check that i've heard uh, our prime minister refer to muslims are us in the same sentence now to me that's a welcome change because the the person who uh, perpetrated the massacre saw himself legitimated in the discourse of our government he saw them as a mirror whether it's their silence, whether it's what they continue to promote, whether it's... So that gave him the legitimacy and the radicalisation built up when you continue to build the conversation over the last two decades. So when our governments begin to turn that tone and change it to a more inclusive, um, then I think that's a welcome change. And yes, we'll continue to... So yes, I love what New Zealand's doing, but there's no point all of us going to live in New Zealand. Uh, and she's certainly, you know, I wish she would, but, but we she's could, certainly but, but not going to come here. But we could, <laughs> we, could, we could have a new, a new approach that we can learn from. Yes. And, uh, 
I mean, you know, you've also shown in your your business that um, social change has really epitomised what you've done for decades now. And I mean, there was no <laughs> guide for how to do that either. So there's a lot of trailblazers in this conversation. Indeed. And look, um, we when I say we, I, I say we as communities, as diverse communities, and importantly, we as communities who share a vision. And it doesn't matter who we are, men, women, boys, girls, non-gender, binary, black, white, it doesn't matter, that we resonate and share a vision of humanity where we afford people dignity and respect, it doesn't matter who they are. Or, um, I guess, where the fault line is, and that seems to me to be a global phenomenon, certainly translated in Australia. Um, the other side, which are closed protectionist societies, ones that want to maintain the status quo, the powers that be extracting privilege for the few. And both men, women, black, white, non-gender binary also sit on that side. So I think the decision before us is the choice about the type and sort of society we want. And the invitation is certainly available to us. And we can, in whatever respective profession we do, whether we're radio presenters, restaurateurs, it doesn't matter. If that is the vision we want to promote, then it's important to be active about it. However much we may be ridiculed, it doesn't matter. Well, and, and you absolutely are. And uh, uh, taking your Speed Date, a Muslim event outside of the restaurant to Federation Square coming up on the April, on April the 7th, what are you expecting down there? And I guess what are you, you hoping to achieve from that? Um, I guess simply just to give a greater, more mainstream opportunity for people, because often, you know, the criticism is, oh, you live inside a bubble. Well, I say grow the bubble rather than get out of the bubble. Um, or you're preaching to the converted. And, and look, yes, also, um, the importance of the converted growing um, until such a time we kind of end up forming coalitions and growing together. Human beings, I go back to uh, simply and, and moving away all the nonsense and all the politics. Human beings are wired for good. We feel better when uh, and we feel safer and we, when we exist in more harmonious societies and when we do the right thing. <clears throat> uh, so I think conversations around... Um, offering up opportunities for people to come together and talk about the stuff that's unsettling you and doing away with the hysteria um, and coming back to our capacity to reason, to engage in facts, facts matter, um, to engage in conversation, to engage in and connect ultimately with our humanity. Time and again, I've seen it work in a small scale in North Fitzroy. Um, and I think taking, and we have run them at the National Gallery before, we've run them at the State Library, um, but I think on the back of Christchurch, there's probably 10, 20% much more curiosity than there ever was about what is this thing that's unsettling us? And this is an opportunity for women especially, Muslim women, um, as distinct from seeing Islam as just this thing. We're able to see the, in the individual inside Islam. We're able to see Islam in its diversity. We're able to see Islam in its gender um, through the platforms that we engage in. So, um, you know, and this will be hopefully another event that we will continue to to create stronger communities through. And now we're totally out of time, but how do people book if they want to take part in um, it? It's Sunday the 7th of April, uh, the next Speed Data Muslim event. How do they do it? Is it um, hitting your... Um 
Facebook page? Or? Uh, yep, go to our, I will put it up. This I just secured the space now, like literally 10 minutes <laughs> Watch before this. I walked Great in. Timing. Watch this space because <laughs> so, I've been, I've actually been on my phone trying to find the booking form so I could yeah. say interested or whatever yeah. I was going to do. So I mean, they, they can email hello at moroccansuper.com.au or they can go to our Facebook page. I'll put something up in about two minutes. But I did want to make a quick announcement, if I may. Um, we have... Um, also been awarded an Order of Australia medal, which we're just about to, um, and when I say we, to me, it is a we. Um, and uh, and I think there's an important um, message in giving that back to a community. This should be an endorsement of a vision. It is not an endorsement, although the, the awards and medals are given to individuals. Um, but for me, especially during these times, that we were awarded an Order of Australia medal for the work of community cohesion, for bringing people together, to me is an indication that not only is there an appetite for better, and communities are the ones that put up the nominations, but that it's endorsing a vision of compassion and humanity as opposed to fear and hostility. So I just wanted to congratulate the entirety of Melbourne and all those who frequent the Moroccan Super because this is your award and thanks and guys yours for as well us. congratulations <laughs> thank you it's thank great you. to have you hannah asafiri you. Uh, you can eat with her throughout the week <laughs> thank you this has been a podcast from 3 triple 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au